0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 1, we're going to pick up at verse 43. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. The next day, he, Jesus, purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we look at this passage and as I preach through it, that you would bless us, that you would give us uh, a a desire to hear your word, to know your word, and to be doers of your word. Father, uh, be with us and supply these desires through your Holy Spirit. Work in us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So let's take stock of where we're at in the Gospel of John. John's prologue from verse 1 uh, of chapter 1 up till verse 18 uh, took us really to a time before time. It spoke of the, the eternity of, of the Word, of the Son of God, of the second person of the Trinity. The prologue also introduced us to the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist. At verse 19, then, we hear of the announcement that that forerunner of the appearance of the Messiah makes, uh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then at verse 35, we read of Jesus calling, beginning to call together his apostles, call together uh, those who would carry on the work of the church after the crucifixion. Two weeks ago, we read about Andrew and his brother Peter, or Cephas. This morning we turn to Philip, who would be an apostle, and Philip's friend Nathaniel. Who was Nathaniel? Uh, He doesn't appear in the list of the apostles in Matthew 10, in Mark 3, in Luke 6, in Acts chapter 1. This name doesn't appear there. But there is a name on those lists that's often combined with Philip's, and that is Bartholomew. And so we think that this Nathanael is Bartholomew. And uh, that's, that's what um, most of the commentaries and most of the arguments that I read pointed toward. And uh, so this really is the calling. Nathaniel's not just some random insignificant guy that we never hear of again. This is the apo- one of the apostles. Um, and so we're, we're hearing of the calling of two more apostles uh, today. So we've moved from the city of Galilee, uh, or we've moved from the city of Bethany into the city of, of Galilee, though, it, or the area of Galilee, though, it appears that Philip, uh, who was from the same home hometown as Andrew and Peter, heard about Jesus in Bethsaida. So uh, there is some word getting around at this point. Uh, there's something remarkable in this scene, and that is how unremarkable it is, particularly with Philip. Right, um, Jesus found Philip. Jesus said to Philip, follow me, and Philip follows. It's very simple. It's unremarkable. Um, Calvin takes away uh, this from the simple scene. He says, when Philip was inflamed by the single word to follow Christ, we infer from it how great is the power of the word of God. But it does not appear indiscriminately in all, for God addresses many without any advantage, just as if he struck their ears with a sound which vanished in the air. So then the external preaching of the word is in itself unfruitful, except that it inflicts a deadly wound on the reprobate so as to render them inexcusable. But when the secret grace of God quickens that word... All the senses must be affected in such a manner that men will be prepared to follow wherever God calls them. We ought, therefore, to pray to Christ that he may display in us the same power of the gospel. Right? One word, follow me. That's one word in the, in the Greek. Um, in other words, God works through his word. God works through his word. In the case of Philip, he heard that word from the very mouth of God. Uh, today, you and I hear the Word of God from what was inspired by God and recorded for us by those eyewitnesses. It's the universal experience of all Christians that they have been and will continue to be bowled over by the Word of God. That is, the, that is a, a common, universal experience for those who know God, who know the triune God uh, this is why I think it's common for each of us to have a favorite passage from Scripture, right? Usually, that's the passage you know that in which God spoke to us when we came to faith. You know, for for me, that's Philippians four six and seven. Um, God God used those verses powerfully when I was nineteen. For my daughter Anna, it's Romans ten nine, right? And she goes back to those words and finds encouragement. Um, the the word is active. The word of God is active. I mean, it's a, it's a uh, we we get we get thrills and chills out of reading fiction and reading uh, nonfiction and picking up books, but those are all powerless books, right? The word of God, inspired by God Himself, is active. And it's powerful. And so, how, how shameful when, when we neglect the word of God. Like Philip, if you just open up your Bible at the beginning of the day, it may be one word that sticks in your mind and gives you faith the whole day. One word. That's all it takes. One, maybe even one half of a word. No, I don't know if that's possible. One word. You carry it with you and you follow Jesus as that word works in your heart and your mind. The word of God is active and it's the means by which the spirit works in us. The Westminster Confession says we may be moved. Listen to this. They say all these things about the word of God. How amazing the word of God is. How wonderfully it works. To All the parts work together. How it's glorious language. But then they say all of that's really nothing. And they make a conclusion, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the word of God, and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it abundantly evidences itself to be the word of God. Yet, notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from what? The inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So they're like, you know, the Word of God is glorious. It's glorious for this reason, this reason, this reason, this reason, this reason. But you'll never believe it's the Word of God unless the Holy Spirit works in your heart. You never will. You'll read it as you read Moby Dick. But you won't cling to it as the words, the very words of life. We know we are hearing the Word of God when the Spirit bears witness in our hearts It is a supernatural experience. It is God's Spirit at work in us, revealing to us what He knows. And what does the Holy Spirit know? He knows all things. He knows even the very depths of God. And so think about Jesus coming to Philip and speaking those simple words, follow me. Without the Spirit working in Philip's dead heart, he would have heard the words, and shrugged his shoulders, he would have went on to the next thing. He would not have been impacted by them at all. Like many who heard Jesus speak, he could have just walked away unaffected. Spirit was working in Philip at that moment, which is also to say that Jesus, in a sense, think of this, Jesus, at that moment, and saying, follow me, trusted upon the work of the Spirit of God. Jesus was relying on the Spirit of God to be working in Philip's heart. Later, Jesus would say to his apostles, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own, on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. So Jesus trusts in the Spirit The Spirit trusts in Jesus. Jesus trusts in the Father doing the work he has laid out for him. And so there's there's much going on in this passage when Jesus says, just one word, follow me. And Philip responds with faith. The Trinity is focused on this man, Philip. Every person of the Trinity is focused on this one man, Philip. And the result, just as Uh, with you, if you have come to know Christ, is a life lived for Christ and in Christ from that point. The word of God is powerful. The word of God is powerful. Now, the first thing Philip does after the Spirit works in his heart, what does he do? He wants to tell people about Jesus. He goes and talks to his friend, Nathaniel. Uh, He becomes an evangelist. He takes what he has found. He shares it with others. Philip searched out Nathaniel, it says he found him, and, and does not beat around the bush, right? He says, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Right? We've, we've found the prophet. We have found the one prophesied by Moses. We have found, he's saying we've found the Messiah. Now, it's clear that Philip has in mind the prophesied Messiah when he says that the one he has found was written about in the Pentateuch and in the prophets. This doesn't mean that Nathanael understood everything about the divine origin of the Messiah. He knows that this is the guy that Moses wrote about, that he is the promised one, but but. Note what he says about Jesus. He does not speak of him being the divine Logos, right, like we had looked in the, like the Apostle John wrote about. He didn't talk about him being God and and being with God, um, as as John would later write. He speaks of Jesus' earthly origin. He's the son of Joseph, and he's from Nazareth, right? Right? Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He points toward his earthly origin. Um, Now, these two things are not even technically correct. I mean, if we want to get into technicalities, right? Calvin and Ryle say that Philip speaks from his ignorance at this point. Well, I don't know about that. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And of course, Jesus technically has no earthly father, as far as his conception is considered. Um, Ryle goes on to make this conclusion from Philip's uh, mistaken testimony. Ryle says Philip's heart was at present better than his head. His heart was into it, but he's just—he's sort of just a new convert, and he's he's saying a lot of things that might might be a little bit off. Ryle goes on, the miraculous conception of Christ was hidden from him, yet it is not unworthy of remark that this ignorant account of our Lord was very likely the cause of Nathaniel's doubt and prejudice exhibited in the next verse. The mistakes of young converts are often mighty stumbling blocks in the way of other people's souls. Now, there's part of that that I say, yeah, um, wait wait till, you know, Wait till you know something of Scripture before you begin teaching Scripture. But there is a zeal that comes through conversion that just can't be denied, and it's not the sort of thing you want to suppress, right? Um, Aquila and Priscilla taught Apollos, but it appears Apollos was very eloquent and went out and taught before he really knew what he should teach, and they just came to him and said, okay, we're going to teach you the way a little bit better, and now keep doing what you're doing, right? And so, in some sense, um, you don't want to kill youthful zeal. Um, Calvin, ever subtle, right, says, there are many poor dunces in the present day who, though ignorant and unskilled in the use of language, make known Christ more faithfully than all the theologians of the Pope with their lofty speculations. (laughs) So he's like, give me the dunces. Um, and not, not the Pope's theologians. Um, he goes on, he says, This passage therefore warns us that if any unsuitable language has been employed concerning Christ by ignorant and unlearned men, we ought not to reject such persons with disdain, provided they direct us to Christ. So he's like, he's even saying, look, don't reject them. They're pointing us toward Christ. They're not getting all the things right. Um, I think of street evangelists, young guys. They're all young guys. They're new converts. They're zealous, but they're not studied. And I like their way of doing street preaching rather, you know, better than the way of us not doing evangelism at all. Um, there, is a, there is a zeal that's good, but on the other hand, um, there is a time when uh, your knowledge of the Word of God must be increased. Now, there's another way to interpret what Philip says about Jesus. Technically, it is true that Joseph is legally Jesus' father. right? He raised Jesus as his son. And technically and legally, this is his son. And Nazareth is the city in which Jesus spent nearly all of his days from his youth. We just read Matthew 2, where they come back from Egypt and where do they plop down. In Nazareth, and the interesting thing about that passage in Matthew is, there's it quotes a prophet that he'll he'll land in Nazareth, but we have no idea where that prophecy comes from. It's not the Old Testament. I mean, it's there's no reference to it, and so, but nonetheless, it's um, that is Jesus' hometown. He was technically from Bethlehem, but his hometown was Nazareth. Nevertheless, the words spoken by Philip, whether arising from his understanding or his ignorance, led to this, this striking now interchange between Nathanael, Bartholomew, and Jesus. Hearing that Jesus is from Nazareth, Nathaniel doesn't hold back. Right? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth. Nazareth? Right? That's that's he's kind of like can seriously? And so Nathaniel is showing his prejudice, the same kind of prejudice that Southerners have against Northerners, um, and, and New Yorkers have with Bostonians, right? And, and UNC fans have with Duke fans, and Suburbanites have with city dwellers, um, what was it about Nazareth that led Nathaniel to make the statement? Well, Nazareth was an obscure little city on the edges of Galilee in the middle of nowhere, out in the countryside. Bethsaida, where it appears Philip and Nathaniel hailed from, was on the Sea of Galilee. It was a fisherman's headquarter, right? It had some, it had some goings and comings. It had more activity. And when Nathaniel heard this city, he... he he would have been surprised that the Messiah would come from such a backwoods place and that there was no mention of it in the scriptures. It would be like saying that Jesus came from Scranton, PA, right? Or Toledo, Ohio, right? Or Florence, South Carolina. Or, you know, Wichita, Kansas. Uh, Paint-lick, Kentucky, you know, Jesus was from flyover country. That's where Jesus was from. Now think about this. So many people, whether they be big city elites or Hollywood's finest, truly believe that nothing good comes out of these flyover areas of our country. I mean, remember Hillary Clinton's deplorables comment. If you've seen, uh, if you've seen that old movie uh, *Breaking Away*, set in Bloomington, Indiana, there's a, a division between the college kids and the Cutters. Those, uh, the Cutters, were those who worked in, uh, whose fathers worked in the limestone quarries on the west side of town, away from the college campus. Right. Um, it's true. Both sides have disdain for each other. We disdain those who are from places different from ourselves. Patricians hate plebeians and plebeians hate patricians. Um, there's a memorable section in the in one of well, in one of the most important of Antonin Scalia's dissenting opinions. This is from Obergefell, right? The, the, um, the judgment that uh, overturned millennia, uh, the, the def- definition of marriage that had stood for, for millennia. He wonderfully describes this, this tension in his piece as he, you know, as he takes up the side of the Nazarenes. He says, judges are selected precisely for their skill as lawyers. Whether they reflect the policy views of a particular constituency is not or should not be relevant. Not surprisingly then, the federal judiciary is hardly a cross-section of America Take, for example, this court, which consists of only nine men and women, all of them successful lawyers who have studied at Harvard or Yale Law School. Four of the nine are natives of New York City. Eight of them grew up in East and West Coast states. Only one hails from the vast expanse in between. Not a single Southwesterner, or even, to tell the truth, a genuine Westerner. California does not count. (laughs) That's what he writes. Not a single evangelical Christian a group that comprises about one quarter of Americans or even a Protestant of any denomination. The strikingly unrepresentative character of the body voting on today's social upheaval, upheaval would be irrelevant if they were functioning as judges, answering the legal question whether the American people had ever ratified a constitutional provision that was understood to, to prescribe the traditional definition of marriage. But, of course, the justices in today's majority are not voting on that basis. They say they are not. And to allow the policy question of same-sex marriage to be considered and resolved by a select, patrician, highly unrepresentative panel of nine is to violate a principle even more fundamental than no taxation without representation, no social transformation without representation. (laughs) Woo. Oh, man. All of that, I mean, this is just an example of, there's so much that I could say about that and what he says there, but this is just an example of how place of origin is, is, um, is important. There exists in us these kinds of prejudices against people because of where they are from. And amazingly, in the case of Nathaniel, it almost has the effect of drawing him away from Christ, Right? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip's got to say, well, come and see. Philip's got to say, I'll prove it to you. Um, Nathaniel was close to shutting himself off from Christ. Because he was under the influence of a preconceived opinion that no good thing can come out of Nazareth. And Man Satan labors every day for for us to cut ourselves off from good because of these petty distinctions and prejudices. I mean people when I when I moved here from Toledo, Ohio, we had people leave this church because I was not a Southerner. <laughs> I didn't have the accent. I wasn't Southern. How could I possibly minister the gospel of Jesus Christ if I was not a Southerner? And um, so these, you know, I think we all could give, we could all have experiences of this, right? It goes without, you know, almost without saying that Satan continues to work this way today. We see it in the graceless gospel of Black Lives Matter movement, Okay? Satan loves to drive that wedge of hatred between people. And he's doing so today by making people condemn others simply because of their whiteness. And a century ago, he did it when many were condemned simply because of their blackness. And so this kind of division is the devil's delight. He can get us to overlook the message and despise the messenger Because of his superficial differences, Nathaniel might have condemned the Son of God just because he grew up in Nazareth. Today we do the same thing. We will not give voice, we will not even listen to those who grew up in certain places, to those who have certain political views, to those who have certain physical characteristics. This is what happens, right, when no one cares about the truth. When no one cares about the truth, then subjective superficialities, like country of origin and color of skin, divide men from one another. The truth, truth like we are all created in the image of God and descend from one man, Adam, is the only thing that will set us free from these these superficial prejudices. Nathanael was in danger of missing Christ because he had presuppositions about Nazareth. So let that be a lesson to us. Now, wonderfully, Philip uh, Philip doesn't get bent out of shape or get on his high horse when Nathanael chucks Nazareth under the bus. He takes Nathanael to Jesus and is patient with this brother who thinks much like you and I do. So Philip leads Nathanael to Jesus, and Jesus exclaims, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, or I think in the King James, in whom there is no guile. Right, that word deceit, it can be translated craftiness, guile. Um, it's intended to point out that Nathanael is the kind of man who isn't slick. He doesn't dissimulate. Do you know what dissimulate means? It means to hide Hide what you're thinking, sophisticatedly. Nathaniel is not cunning and sophisticated. He's sincere. He he uh, combining that with what Jesus says of Nathaniel in the previous phrase, an Israelite um, indeed. This really is a commendation of him. Jesus is saying that Nathaniel is the Jew inwardly circumcised of the spirit he's not deluded and now Jesus is being very gracious very gracious toward Nathaniel in this response he's acknowledging Nathaniel's character but not dismissing him he does not retort with some denunciation of Nathaniel's hometown well Bethsaida fisherman you know he he even commends Nathaniel for his transparency Nathaniel then doesn't get sheepish at this point. He doesn't get silent. He retorts, well, how do you know me? How do you know me? Is it, how do you know me? Or is it, how do you know me? I don't know the tone of it, but he, he's, he's like perplexed. Uh, Nathaniel hears what Jesus says and, and lets his thoughts again out. How do you know me? Jesus gives him a cryptic answer. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Um, well, how does that answer answer Nathaniel's question about how Jesus knew what kind of man he was, man without guile, a true Israelite? Well, it doesn't really, unless we know who Jesus is and what kind of knowledge Jesus has. He knew what was in man he knew nathaniel even from the days of eternity he had fashioned this man in his mother's womb and for jesus to see him is for jesus to know him right he knows he knows this man some claim that nathaniel was probably praying under that tree and that is what jesus observed and that becomes the basis upon which jesus made his assessment of his character Right? So he saw him under the tree, he was praying, and Jesus concluded, well, a devout man, right? Um, a man without guile. I think it's as I said earlier, Jesus had a divine knowledge of this man. Right? He knew this man. He knew him better than he knew himself. Right? And amazingly, Nathaniel, this man without guile, makes the first proclamation of Jesus' divine origin. Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Just like that, he's making this proclamation. Rabbi, you are the son of God. Rabbi, he's acknowledging Jesus as his teacher already, right? He doesn't, he's just met this, but knowing he's the Messiah, he's this is my teacher. Son of God, he understood certainly not fully the things that John the Apostle would later write in this chapter about Jesus being God and um, being with God in the Trinity. And then he says, king of Israel. Nathanael had some kind of understanding that this was the promised Messiah who would gather together and restore the tribes of Israel. He was the king described in Psalm 2, right? In fact, Nathanael's knowledge of his kingdom was limited at this point, but you and I know that he is not merely the king of Israel, but he's the king of the whole world whose kingdom knows no bounds, all of his children will be the Israel of God. So this is an amazing confession by Philip, I mean, by Nathaniel at this point. And um, it's, in some ways, it's more amazing than the confession we always think about, which is Peter's later on, after Peter has spent many, many days and nights with Jesus. But in both cases, it was something that was revealed to them by God himself supernaturally. This is just like was said of Peter's confession. Jesus' response is one of his own kind of amazement. He says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. In other words, if you make that kind of confession based upon what you have known and experienced up to this point, you are going to be blown away by what is coming, right? This is a, a commendation of Nathaniel's faith. So let me stop and ask a question. What of your faith, right? What of your faith? Does God see you continually wavering? When a minor test comes along from him, does he see you frustrated or does he see you believing? Does everything throw you off your game, so to speak? Right? Something comes along and some test, does it throw you off your game? Would, um, would that our faith was like that of Nathaniel, excelling even when there is so very little positive to provoke it? Right? He's professing his faith here on so little. Um, we, we must live by faith, which means to believe what is written in the Word and live accordingly. When, God says, when God's Word says He will provide, do we believe it? Will we look to Him to provide? When, when God's Word says wait, will we Wait. Right, wait in such a way we're anticipating that our Father will give us good gifts when He finally gives. When God's Word says pray, we do we do so um, earnestly and undistractedly? When God's Word tells us to be pure. We do so knowing that to please Him is infinitely better than to please ourselves. Right? That sort of faith. Or are you always wavering between faith and unbelief? Between, no, no, I know what God's Word says, but no, this is what my flesh is saying. And every little thing becomes a battle. Do you have the sort of faith that has made progress? Right? Shouldn't our sanctification take us further in our holiness so that some battles we once faced are battles that have been lost. I mean, battles that have been won and and done away with, right? That sort of faith. It just strikes me that that Nathanael is here professing his faith. He's professing these things he knows to be true right off the bat. He's not wavering. Now, Jesus tells him the things he's going to see. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So what is Jesus talking about here? Well, clearly, He's referring to Jacob's ladder, Jacob's vision of the ladder reaching from heaven to earth in Genesis 28. It says this, Jacob had a dream and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Right? The purpose of that dream was what? Why did, why did God give that dream to Jacob? The purpose was to reveal God to Jacob to reveal himself to Jacob. The passage goes on, it says, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants also will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. And we'll keep you wherever you go and we'll bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And so you see that God revealed himself to Jacob there, Right? God revealed himself and Jacob responds, the Lord's in this place. He's here. God met Jacob in that place just as Nathaniel is meeting God in Jesus in this gospel. And we'll continue to see his glory more and more as the days go on. But is there some specific event in the life of Christ he's referring to when he says this about the angels ascending and descending? Or is he just being poetic about the whole, right? Some say, some, some commentators say that it was Christ's transfiguration, which seems cheap to me because you always say it's the transfiguration when there's something you can't figure out, right? Um, but we don't, we just, angels ascending and descending. Um, some say it was Christ's transfiguration followed by the ministering angel in Gethsemane followed by Christ's ascent on the Mount of Olives, right? So we have, so we've incorporated the angels, we've incorporated a descent and an ascent. Um, but Nathaniel would not have seen those events, right? Nathaniel wouldn't have seen any of those events not being, um, not being there, certainly for the transfiguration. Uh, some say that all of these events that Christ predicts still are yet to happen. Ryle says our Lord spoke of his second coming and kingdom when he comes the second time to take his great power and reign. The words of this text shall be literally fulfilled. His believing people shall see heaven open and a constant communication kept up between heaven and earth, the tabernacle of God with men, the angels visibly ministering to the king of Israel and the king of all the earth. And I'm inclined to say that that's what... That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying to Nathanael, you're going to see amazing things and you're even going to see this most amazing thing which is when I return in my power and the angels are surrounding my throne and singing my praises. You will see see all of that. Jesus, after all, says says at his trial, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven so our passage in this from Matthew could be the same. I think this is correct. It's what Jesus is speaking about. So, so what Jesus is speaking about is what lies ahead. But what an amazing promise now to give to Nathaniel. Just met him. Just converted. Just went through this short exchange. And he says, you're going to see amazing things. In fact, you're going to see you're going to see the great judgment of all mankind. You're going to see heavens open. You're going to see the new Jerusalem descend from heaven. You're going, to, you're going to see and experience these things. And that's a glorious promise. He will see when the kingdom of God is consummated and he will be in the presence of the Lord just as Jacob was thousands of years before. And Jesus is saying, wait until you see what is coming. It's a glorious promise because it would be an encouragement to Nathaniel, wouldn't it? Um, wouldn't it be great to hear from the mouth of God that you are going to be there at the end and you are going to rejoice in the coming of these things. I mean, he's assuring his salvation to him. All right. <clears throat> now let me, let me conclude here. One of the remarkable things about this whole chapter of, of John is the names it lays out for Jesus. There are 21 21 names for Jesus, the Word, God, life, light, the true light, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, the Lord, the Lamb of God, Jesus, a man, the Son of God, Rabbi, Teacher, Messiah, Christ, the Son of Joseph, the King of Israel, the Son of Man. All of those are in this first chapter. It it would take us ages to plumb the depths of each of those names for Jesus. It is undoubtedly the case that the Holy Spirit, in this first chapter of John, wanted us to learn much about Jesus through his names. Right? And we're not taught, um, we're taught by all these names, all of which are short descriptions of his being, right? His office and, and of his works. If you write... In your Bibles, here's a suggestion. If you write in your Bibles, which you should, um, but don't use highlighters. I don't know. That just drives me crazy. It seems too cheap. Get, an, get a fountain pen and mark up your Bibles. Nah, just forget what I said. Um, if, if you write in your Bibles, it would be good to box off each of the names and then meditate on in This first chapter of John, box off these names and meditate on those names. You know, that that is by one word you may be converted. And just meditating on those names that God has placed in His Word. Um, mull over them so that One of the reasons you want to mull over the names of Christ is so that you wean yourself of superficial thoughts of Jesus. We so often reduce reduce Jesus to our buddy, our confidant, right? But he's much more than that. That undoubtedly is what um, the Apostle John wanted to get across to us. And it's further true that if you do not know Jesus Christ from the testimony of God's word, if you do not... Meditate on what the Word says about Jesus. Then you will manufacture for yourself an idol which you merely call Jesus. Right? Study the Word to know the Son. Give yourself to this work, dear brothers and sisters. Do not rely on what you already know or what comes to you by osmosis from our culture. Right? That source is tainted. Right? Grow. Peter said, put it this way. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow. God will bless those meditations upon his word. And so circle those names in this passage and give it some time in the coming months and days. And then just give thanks for all the grace and mercy that you see wrapped up in each one of these names of Jesus Christ.